Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. My guest this week is skateboarder extraordinaire, one of the most famous and successful athletes in the world, Tony Hawk. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Good to have you, Tony. I'm going to jump right in. Okay. When did you first jump on a skateboard? I was about nine years old. It was when the skating craze of the 70s was, was in its peak, basically. And my older brother was a surfer. And he started skating as a natural progression. Um, he was skating, and I just picked up his old board, and I said, how do I do this thing? And he said, you know, just stand on it and go. And I, I got on it, and I rode to the end of the driveway and slammed into the fence because I couldn't figure out how to turn. Well, you know, it's and, funny. Uh, I have almost an identical story because skateboarding was a big thing in the 60s. Even Jan and Dean had a song called Sidewalk Surfing, yep. which was a remake of Surf City. And, but we had the metal wheels. You had the right. metal wheels and you had the uh, clay wheels. And I was in Mammoth Mountain. It's the same type. I was there for the month of May 1975. And you know Mammoth, the main lodge, the gigantic parking lot. Right. Okay. So the guy gives me a board with the new wheels and I go. And then suddenly I realized, for those people who don't know, it's slowly downhill. And it's at 8,000, almost 9,000 feet. It was a, holy crap, I'm going to have to walk back. <laughs> and I hadn't been on a skateboard in about nine or ten years, and I stepped off the board. Wow. Because, you know, I was smart enough to realize you have to run off the board. Or oh, stuff. you just, you did, we call that a Mr. Wilson. Believe me, I had a Mr. Wilson. The only <laughs> yeah. good thing is I'd come from skiing, and I had, you know, multiple layers of clothing on, ripped right through my turtleneck, my ski pants, my long underwear, got road rash. <laughs> wow. Wow, that was my reintroduction of the 70s. Okay, so you're... You have an older brother. How many kids in your family? Four. We have two older sisters as well. I'm and, the youngest. And you're the youngest. Yeah, by a lot. My, my older brother's 13 years older than me. Your older brother's yeah. 13 years. Yeah. And how much older are your sisters? Uh, 18 and 20. And do you all have the same parents? Yes. So I was a I was a, very much a surprise, an accident. My mom was 43 at the time. So you essentially grew up as almost as an only yes, child. You're with the only grandparents. One of the, wow. Yeah. So... Where, you know, a lot of times when you're the baby of the family, your parents are lenient. They let you do whatever you want. Uh, that Definitely that was the case. I think also my, they had been through a lot of, <laughs> a lot of scenarios with my, a lot of challenging situations with my siblings as well. Just because it was the 70s, you know, they were experimenting and my, my sister got into music. My brother got into surfing and they fully supported them in those endeavors, but you know, it just jumped them out of their comfort zone very much. So once I came along, it was like, what? Just keep him happy. Whatever he's doing, let him do it. <laughs> and what did your father do for a living? Uh, he well, he was a Navy pilot, World War II. Really? And then, uh, and then he sold. Um, I, he kind of got into it through my sister. He started selling musical instruments um, wholesale in San Diego, just as a hobby because uh -huh. their band needed gear. Um, and then he got into it and he made connections and he did that till he retired. Really? Yeah. So part of the whole Nam world, et cetera? Yeah, I used to go to Nam when I was <laughs> when I was like eight, nine years old. For those people who don't know, you know, it's the uh, music merchant show. It's one of the biggest shows in Anaheim. Happens in January. It's a private show, but really, if you know anybody, you can get in. Right. But I just went because, like, I didn't, you know, my mom be out of town, and so my dad would have to take me, and i just sit in his booth or go look well, at Well, you're just blowing my mind because, you know, this is my girlfriend's world. My girlfriend runs a, a foundation called the Mr. Holland's Opus Foundation, which... 
they give instruments to underprivileged schools. Okay. So once you start talking, I know all these people through her that right. I wouldn't know otherwise. I go to Nam with her, so I didn't realize your father sold musical yeah, instruments. Yeah. Well, it was. I mean, it was a pretty. It was a relatively small business in San Diego, but but it was cool. I, I that's how I started. I started playing violin actually at that time. Really? Okay, but just stay with your father. So he's a Navy pilot. Yeah. When they have the right stuff, the movie, the book, whatever, does he start telling stories about that stuff? He, uh, that's a good question. I don't think, he, he didn't feel, I don't want to say proud, but, you know, his valor wasn't that he really wanted to brag about it. I think he he didn't like a lot of stuff he had to do in World War II, especially. So he was pretty mum about all of it. Um, you know, it's but, also but he that, was definitely through, you know running bombing missions. Really, you know, with with propeller planes off of aircraft carriers. Like it was the real deal. Wow, that really is the real deal. I mean, my father was not in the military. He was the sole support for his mother. But it was you know my father would so internalize. It wasn't until he was like in his fifties. Remember riding this? If you ever been to Aspen Highlands, they used to have this chairlift that took a half an hour. And my father all of a sudden starts telling stories about his youth I'd never heard my yeah, whole life. Yeah, he never got into that. I, th- I think a lot of it was he was he was ashamed. He didn't, you know, he didn't like there. There was I remember a time someone was talking about some area, some remote area near Okinawa, Japan, or something, and and they said, "Oh, have you ever been there in that area?" And my dad said, "Bombed it." <laughs> you know, like a kind right, of right, 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 right. but like it was kind of a joke. But you could tell there was a very it was very weighted. Right. Okay. So you're nine years old. And you pick up your brother's skateboard, you skate and you crash into the fence at the end of the road. Right. And then you think, There was no epiphany. (laughs) Um, I thought, you know, I thought it was fun. A lot of my friends had started doing it around that time. So I joined them. It was more like it was a social thing. And we would go skate around the different driveways. You know, we had these alleyways. um, And we would go skate around them. And then every once in a while, someone would build a a little wooden ramp. And so their their place was the the place for a couple of weeks, you know their right, their driveway with their little right. ramp, and then uh, eventually I got invited to go to the local skate park, which was in San Diego, um, called Oasis. And, and how far is that from your house? Uh, like twenty minutes. Okay, it was it was right by the um, the stadium where the Chargers played, actually where the Padres played, um, and so I went there, and when I went there. That's when I had my wow moment. I I saw I literally saw people flying around. I saw these guys. Okay, so was it more seeing what was going on? It was seeing what was going on in the terrain because suddenly it was like we're not just skating on the sidewalk. These are you know empty swimming pools that have this potential to throw you in the air. And I saw that. I saw these guys flying around. I was like, I want to do that. I want to do that at any cost. That was that was my moment for sure. And. I mean, that's really enough, but any other thoughts like, you know, I might get hurt, or this I, might be fun, or thrilling? Thrilling. I mean, that, that was the motivation, for sure. And, and like I said, it was, they were flying. I wanted to fly. And, and everything that I had done leading up to that, I had played a lot of sports. I was always frustrated that I wasn't bigger, and, you know, I was... Well, you're a pretty tall guy, I mean, big No, I was, I was a runt. I was like a, I was a little scrawny dude. You know, okay. and I used to I get mistaken for way younger than I was all the time back then. And so I would play sports and you know, I was I was a good basketball player, especially for my size, but everyone else was taller and they just right. had an advantage. And like I was a decent baseball player, but it was, you know, there was just more I didn't have the, the strength or the weight. And skateboarding unknowingly leveled that playing field for me because I figured out this way to propel my what my limited weight into the air. 
And that generally wasn't the way people could do it. And I was pretty fearless. I didn't, I didn't mind getting hurt for the sake of learning. That okay. was never my issue. And a lot of my friends would get hurt and they were over it. They're done. Okay. So how old are you literally when you go to the skate park? 10 years old. You're 10 years old. It's yeah. 20 minutes away. How do you get there? Uh, I would get a ride with friends. Um, sometimes my dad would take me. And my brother was in college at the time. We had one day a week that he would drive. He was in um, northern San Diego. He, or no, was he? Yeah, northern San Diego. He would drive down and take me to the skate park once a week, and we would go skate together. Okay, so... Every Thursday. So when you're 10 years old, how many times a week are you going to the skate park? Probably two. Okay, two and did they charge you to go to the skate park? They did, yeah. It was, uh, it was nominal, but wasn't easy. Like, my, <laughs> we were middle class-ish. Right. Um, so it was, you know, it, was, it wasn't that I was getting a free ride. Definitely there was, I had a paper route and uh, had to earn it. I, had, I remember earning money for, to buy stickers. <laughs> to buy stickers. Yeah. Wow. What stickers did you buy? Uh, going trucks. <laughs> okay. So you're going twice a week to the skate park. When you're not, are you skating in the neighborhood? Yes. Yeah. So you're pretty much skating every day? Yeah. I mean, the, the, Street skating as a as an actual thing was not considered, so it was just more transportation at the time. Sometimes we'd find, say, a, a curb in front of the dentist office that was that was red, and you could grind it, and um, or a little banks like there there was a little curb right in front of my middle school that you could slide, and we used to slide it in the morning until we started breaking the sprinklers. And then <laughs> I was going to give you my next it. question, because yeah. this was also the era, you know, they started to be a backlash against the noise and the grinding, et cetera. Did you experience It was a little that? bit before that. I mean, the skating still was largely contained at the skate parks, because there was an abundance of skate parks then. Right. But... As that started drying up, mostly because of liability right. and the interest in skating was waning, um, that's when it started becoming this this thing that was like, wait a second, th there's no more facilities for us to go to. We're taken to the streets. And that's when the stigma changed to where these guys are a nuisance. They're breaking property. They're outlaws. We're like, we're just looking for a place to do it. Okay. Going to a parallel thing, whenever you do any research on you, it goes on about schooling and being tested and having an high IQ. So what was your educational experience like? Um, I was always put in advanced classes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I did have this high IQ testing and whatnot, and, and that, that follows me to this day. Right. But, but uh, I, was, I really did enjoy this daredevil thing. And, you know, I was the little kid that would go off the high dive and stuff like that. So so even before you were a skateboarder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I wasn't, a, I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't really afraid to get hurt in the process. So I was so focused on that. But, but at the same time, I was, I was keeping up with my schoolwork. I guess the, the thing that sort of redirected my education was that I got successful in high school. Mm -hmm. I started making really good money in high school, especially around my junior year, to the point where... I was looking around going, oh, everyone's trying to figure out what they're going to do for a living. I have a living. You know, and in, in especially my senior year, I was literally making more money than my teachers. I bought a house while I was still a senior in high school. <laughs> and so it was kind of like, it, it, there were all these signs that just said, you have, you know, you're, you're already doing something. You have a career. And my parents were worried that it was short-lived, which they were absolutely right to. Um, and so they, they encouraged me to maybe take some college courses, you know, on the side or at a community college. And did you do that? 
I went to a college and I looked at the kind of curriculum that I would have. And I said, mom, if I do this, I won't be able to go to these events on like these competitions on the weekend, which is what's fueling my career. Because back in those days, the only thing people cared about was your competition record. And if you weren't able to go to those, forget it. You're not making a living as a skater. You're not getting magazine coverage. I'm not giving you professional skateboard models. Okay, let's go back. So you're starting 10, you're 10, so that's the middle 70s. And then you say because of liability, the skateboards, skate parks die out. Yes. Okay. I'd say like around 83-ish. Okay, the 83-ish. To what degree is there infrastructure that time in terms of skate shops, skate magazines, et cetera? Well, it all, it, there, there was sort of a reorganization then. So everything's, everything collapsed from the inside out for the most part. Can you go skate, a little deeper on that? Uh, skate brands were just going up. You know, they were all going out of business. My, my sponsor, so my, my first sponsor was Dogtown Skateboards. I would go, their wood manufacturer was in San Diego. At one point they just said, oh, if you need skateboards, just go to the wood pressing and go get your own. Like these are skateboards that are no, have no graphics on them, have right. no label on them, but they're Dogtown Skateboards. So I was getting those and putting Dogtown stickers on them. And then sometime around that, I stopped hearing from them. And then I got a call from Stacy Peralta, who was widely regarded as the, one of the most legendary pro skaters, but also um, a curator of one of the best teams. And he called me and said, uh, hey, I heard Dogtown went out of business. <laughs> I, now, I wouldn't have known. This is the same Dogtown in Santa Monica that they yes. made the movie about, etc. Yes, yes. So I was on the very tail end of that as a young grommet amateur. Okay, so... But but that's that's just an example of one of the business, like the... Yeah, literally the company you were involved with yeah, went under. There was there was one skateboard magazine, skateboarder skateboarder magazine, that transformed into, they, they called Action Now, and then it covered like motocross and snowboarding, and it was kind of ahead of its time because... There, those were all fringe sports. They weren't even labeled extreme yet. Right. And so they called it Action Now, and that was the only skate magazine. Then Action Now went out of business. Then there was no skate magazine. And we're putting this about 83? 82, 83. And then Thrasher started. Okay. Couple of, at 82, 83, you're how old? Uh, 14. You're 14. And then what can you tell us about Thrasher starting? Because you know all these people. Uh, it was it's Thrasher started. It was it was a newspaper <laughs> print skate magazine, um, and we were just excited to have a skate magazine, right? You know, and it, the content was it was it was the usual fare. It was like it was competitions and a little bit of street stuff, but it was it was very geared towards what a skate distributor started it so it was geared towards their brands that they distributed right it still is kind of but it's more norcal centric uh and then another skate the sort of antithesis skate magazine started called transworld skateboarding right. and their goal was to promote like healthy skateboarding right and then it became this weird like good and bad thing and um but that's where it all started and thrasher obviously still exists Right, and Transworld got into snowboarding and other things. Transworld, I mean, it was Transworld Media. Right. They went, yeah. Okay, so it dies in the early 80s. You're 14. When do you go to your first competition? Well, my, my first competition was when I was about 10 years old. And was it at that? Because I was just at, at Oasis. I just went, like, one, one weekend, they're having a competition, so I signed up and, you know, filled all the paperwork, and then they called my name, and I did my little run, and... And then I went and asked what the results were. And this woman, I'll never forget, she was going through the results and she got a sheet of paper. And I was like, can you tell me, uh, you know, what place I got? She said, what's your name, honey? So she's looking at the paper. She, she like folds over one paper. She folds over the next paper. 
Finally, she gets to the last <laughs> column, and I'm second to last out of like a hundred. How great is that? <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> so you're second to second last. I'll never forget the look she gave me. She's like, oh, I'm sorry, honey. You got 94th or whatever <laughs> it was. So you're second to last, and what goes through your brain? Uh, I didn't really know. I, I think what, goes, what went through my brain at the time, you know, I wasn't trying to make career. No one was making a career Right, you were 10. I was, yeah, and whatever. And it was, but it was more like, oh, I got to figure out how to do better tricks. Or I got to figure out a better approach. Because my approach was that I thought I was supposed to submit the tricks that I can do to tell them ahead of time and then do that thing. And I, there was no room for being spontaneous there was no creativity really. And I was like, I got to figure out better tricks that'll get me noticed. And that was pretty much the catalyst for sort of creating my own style. Okay. How do you learn those tricks? I just started tinkering with different ways to like spin my board and, and do tricks that were not of, it was more out of um, necessity because I wasn't big enough to do these really these really gnarly tricks at the top of the bowl and things like that that the guys were right. doing. I mean, I figured out how to do little aerials and things, but but I knew how to maneuver my board and and, and switch my body around and do these really what they called at the time avant-garde tricks that didn't get much traction but set me apart. Okay, so you literally on your own trip. No one else is doing the same yes. thing. No one. But for those of us who certainly been to the skate park and watched. It takes an incredible amount of repetition and failure to master these tricks. It does, but it was it was less so then because the tricks that you were learning back then, you were learning them for the sake of competition. So you're learning them to get consistent with them. Okay. Nowadays, you can do a trick, you make one out of a thousand, get it on video, you know, it's hero. But it was not like that back then. We didn't have videos. We only had competition to prove ourselves. So you had to learn stuff and get it dialed and put it in your competition run. That's how you were going to get noticed with it. And how long was a competition run? 45 seconds. 45 seconds. And when you, it's, it's, well, there were heroes at San Diego. I mean, you were number 94. Was there a big kahuna in uh, the skate park in San Diego? Uh, yeah, Dave Andrecht. He was the local hero. That's why I wanted going stickers. He wrote for going. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, are you up in your bedroom at night plotting this, or is this just one thing you're doing? It was just one thing I was doing. It wasn't until... I guess I, it, by default, the way that skating started to get really, I don't want to say exclusive, but it started getting very narrow, you know, and there wasn't a lot of competition, there wasn't a lot of interest. Uh, I was still skating a lot and, and learning tricks, and the skate park had a tryouts for their skate park team, um, and that team was going to go represent that park at different parks for this competition called ASPO, Associated Skate Park Owners. And so I went to the tryouts. And I don't think I was the best skater at the tryouts for my age group, but I made everything. And they picked me for the team. I mean, you made all I, your... I made all my tricks. Right. And the other guys that I thought were better than me, they were trying really hard things, but they, they weren't consistent. And so they picked me, and, and suddenly I was on. I was representing Oasis as a skate park team member. Okay, so you originally went to Oasis with your friends. Did yeah. they stick with it or did they, they fall off? They quit. Okay, they quit. So, were you friendly with all these people at Oasis? I found my community there, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So and the locals, like I said, skating was kind of drying up, so there were only a handful of locals. And that became my, that was my crew. And they were all from different walks of life, different age groups. You know, it wasn't like they were, they were my peers in the sense of 
same age or the same area, which was super cool because I, I got to know, you know, I, I learned about punk music back then. I I was hanging out with dudes that have mohawks and, and you know, people that were coming from really difficult backgrounds that found skating as a salvation. And, and I just learned so much through that. Your parents have any idea what was going on there? My parents became their surrogate parents. Oh, really? Yeah, because they really liked the... They liked the creativity and the, they liked what it had given me and they were helping to, they wanted to help the, the other kids as well, the ones that were having trouble. And so we would have like, if there was a competition in San Diego at Oasis, there would be 10 dudes sleeping at our house from all wow. over. Yeah. And that's the kind of parents your parents are in yeah. terms of your house. You have an open door policy, et cetera. Uh, to an extent, yes. <laughs> yeah. So now you're on the Oasis team. Yeah. And how often are you competing? Um, the series is was usually during the summer for a couple months, you know, every other weekend or so, uh, and then we would just be gaining points for our for our team or whatnot. And then eventually, you know, the the guys who were really succeeding would end up getting real sponsors, and they would move up a class of of. Um, so where do you fit in all this? Uh, a, a, I got sponsored by Dogtown right around that same time, and eventually got sponsored by Powell. My first year on Powell, or maybe my second year on, on Powell Peralta, which was Stacey Peralta's company, right. that's when I won the amateur circuit, like overall. Right, well, 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 let's go way back before that. So, Well, it's not that far. I mean, we're only talking about a year is, or two. Hi, yeah, okay. So you're, no, you're number 94. Then you come up <laughs> yeah. with your own track tricks. Then you're on the team. Yep. When you first start going to competitions, how do you do? Uh, I was usually in like the top three. Okay, and you're attributing that to the fact you made up your own tricks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I put the I put the effort into getting used to different terrain. A lot of the skaters back then were only good in their home park. And you did that how? Well, I would try to get to the the other parks as much as I could, and my dad would make these day trips where he would load a bunch of people in his camper, in his uh, uh, <laughs> pickup truck camper, and we would go like we would we would drive from San Diego to Reseda. Really? For the day. And everyone would get to practice at the Reseda Park for the day, and then we would come home. That's then, great that your father or, did that. Or like a friend of a friend. I mean, I remember, I remember getting in the back of a pickup truck in San Diego, um, putting a tarp over me and my friend, and then he drove us to Upland <laughs> to go practice. And that's that's what we had to do. Right, know? right. But well, we but it's willing... great. It's great that it happened. Yeah, and and like I don't look back on that and think, oh, like that was a struggle. That was it was more like that was an adventure. That Absolutely, was awesome. it was super dangerous. But. Of course, I remember going to Boy Scout camp before they changed all the rules that we could ride in the back of the pickup truck. Yeah, they can't. They don't let you do that anymore. Yeah. But as I say, go. You went how many competitions before your top three? I would say within the first second year of competition. Okay, in my division, right? But top three is top three. Yeah, what's going through your brain then? Uh... It's so weird. You know, it's, it, it's, I wasn't aspiring to do it for a living. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aspiring to be number one or anything because, well, I wanted, I wanted to do well, but skating was such a small industry that you didn't dream of fame or fortune because no one had it. It didn't exist. So I guess that's, that's the strain, well, that's the lucky thing for me. And I was young enough that I didn't have to worry about that so much. Um, but as I did start to do better, then suddenly it was like, Oh wait, this is you know these other. I'm on the radar of of these bigger sponsors, 
and then eventually picked a couple of them up. And then it was like, well, these guys believe in me. I better really perform for them. Okay, but at what moment do you internalize and say, wait a second, not only am I good, I'm better than most of the people? Uh, I think that was around the time that, that I got sponsored by Powell because Powell was considered the elite team. And I went through a lot of... Um, Issues just with self-confidence and self-esteem. I was made fun of a lot. I, mean, I was a scrawny little dude with a strange style doing what they called circus tricks. Like, I, I didn't feel great about myself, but I liked what I was doing. I liked skating. Right. When Powell sponsored me, it gave me this validation that it was like, well, they believe in what you're doing. Like, keep, keep at it. Keep going that direction. Okay, and you must have been like over the moon when they decided to uh, sponsor you. Yeah, well, I was that and completely intimidated because suddenly I'm on the team. I mean, I was on the team with Steve Caballero, who I saw in a magazine when I was little and gave me, he gave me the inspiration to go learn how to skate pools. You know, when I saw him flying out of a pool, I was like, I want to do that. That guy looks like he's my size. Wow. Okay. So now you're, uh, you're on the Oasis team. How long before that burns out? Well, Oasis closed. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah uh, not, <laughs> not much long after that. And it closed because of liability. Yeah, yeah, and, and obviously um, attendance as well. Okay, um, so it looks, even though you're doing better and better, that the sport is dying. It, yeah, luckily I was naive enough to not understand how what that meant as an industry and as a future. Um, I just knew that there were fewer parks. That's the only effect it had on me. Okay, so the Oasis team is over. Where do you end up competing? Who do you end up competing for? Uh, for for Powell Peralta, that, okay. the Bones Brigade. Okay. Um, I got you know I got a couple other sponsors. I got a, a truck sponsor, Shocker Trucks, and then eventually I was started doing well in competition. I reached the top of the amateur circuit, um, and a lot of my peers started going pro. And what that meant at the time to go pro meant that. When you fill out an entry form for a competition, you tick the pro box instead of the amateur box. I'm not kidding. That was it. <laughs> okay. But how old were you then? 14. You're 14. They're going pro. You're on. So Well, it was more like I was, I was the top of the amateur circuit. Right. Some of my peers have gone pro. If I stayed an amateur, then I was, I was a wuss. Right. Because I'm just, I'm, you know, I, I'm taking it easy. I'm, I'm staying okay, in the amateur Okay, but it, what did it mean to go pro then, other That's than ticking the meant. box? Well, you tick the box. If you were lucky and your sponsor believed in you, they would give you a skateboard with your name on it. But there was no victory schedule, none of that. <laughs> no. There okay. was no champagne. Okay, so now you're, you're skating for Powell. Walk me through the next chapter. Uh, so I'm skating for Powell. Eventually, they did give me a pro model. Um, I got a couple of royalty checks. Uh, I got one for four dollars one month. <laughs> the next month, I got one for eighty-five cents. Um, and you're like a sophomore, junior in high school. I uh, I was a yeah, I was a sophomore probably at that point. Okay, so at that maybe. point, you're not seeing the dream. This is just something you're doing. I, yeah, I didn't. I, I was stoked. Of Stay course, with my name on it. Of that, course. Well, I mean, what could be better? And, and, you know, the fact that I still got to skate for, not for a living, but as, as my main hobby, um, I, at some point, got to start traveling. I went to Japan when I was 14 for a TV show. Um, I oh, wait, traveled. wait, 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 a little bit slower. This is before the days of email. What, the phone rings or you're with the other guys with Peralta? They, um, 
I, I guess they had seen something of me on either video or, you know, because then I, I was I was moving through the ranks of the pro series very quickly. Okay. From the first year that I turned pro, I was at the top. Pretty much. And I pretty once much again, stayed there. Would you think that's because you had your own unique tricks? Because once you do them, other people can it's, imitate you. It's also because I grew into my style. I got it more refined. I got bigger. I got stronger. And suddenly I had that power that I wanted, you know, that I thought that I wanted to emulate from the, the older guys when I saw them at first. Suddenly I was that size. And the size of the the bowls and things wasn't as intimidating. And suddenly I could do these really difficult tricks at new heights. And it was like this perfect storm of, of my puberty and my skill set all coming together. Okay. But I'm interested in the internal element because... Anybody who's competed at an elite level knows the people at the top. It's kind of funny. You can skate with them every day. But, like, I used to work, you know, ski professionally. And there were guys who used to ski with the world champion. This is freestyle skiing in the 70s. He would be better in competition. Yeah. You know, he yeah. didn't choke. He went up to another level. Okay, and there was an internalization where he felt comfortable with his abilities. So I'm interested in how you felt yourself independent. Did you say, wait, I have this nailed, I'm better than everybody, or you're insecure, or what is it? Um, I, I would obsess on competitions to the point where I, to the point where my routines became boring to me, and. I knew that I had that uh, most of these, you know, I had I had all the components to the run I wanted, and when it came time to to compete, I could put them all together right. and feel confident with it. So I definitely had that where I did up it when it time came time to compete. But I think that it it was in that moment that that like a lot of the guys, you know, we are coming into our teen years, a lot of distractions, people were starting to party and stuff like that. I never wanted to do that because I didn't want to, I didn't want my skills to fade at all. And, and I didn't want my success to fade. And I felt because I had been, you know, we, we've come so far in society and whatnot, but you know, I was bullied for the most part when I was a kid before I started skating. And even when I did start skating by the older generation and all I, I just always was trying to prove myself, you know, and that, that gave me this fire to, to keep at Okay. It. And you're in high school and you're getting successful. Give you any status in the high school? Well, that's the, okay. The irony of that is, is, I would go to these competitions. You know, I'd say I'd go to Florida for this big event. There'd be a thousand people there cheering and they think I was great and whatnot. I'd come back to, to high school, I was a ghost. <laughs> like, and, and I would sometimes hide my skateboard because people thought there was a stigma with skating. It was like, you still skate? Like it was like you bringing a yo-yo to school. Right, right. Okay, go back to your 14 and you go to Japan, how that comes together. Uh, so they, I, I don't really know the, the details of it. I know that they called my sponsor and said, hey, we, we would like to bring him. It's, it's sort of, I forgot what it was called, something about talent, you know, the Talented Kids Show. Kind of like a That's Incredible for, oh, okay. for kids back then. Um, you know, one of the other acts was this this group of sisters all sort of um middle school age that had a band okay um and they were all from america a but lot it was, of them were from the it US. was just you it wasn't the whole team it was just me and then they had to assign uh sort of an escort to me a translator um, well, who, to look but after did me. you get on the plane alone did you go with your mother or what was i it? got on the plane with my with my handler that You're, they assigned to me. Really? So somebody you didn't know, and your parents... Someone said, didn't know, from Japan, flew to L.A., met me in L.A., flew me to Japan. What'd your parents say? They thought it was awesome. 
Okay, so you go to Japan. I got to ask. They fly in the back of the plane or the front of the plane? Oh, no, there was no first class. <laughs> so no. you, so we you, were, as, as successful and as, as full of ourselves, so to speak, as we were back then, right. we were not living large, ever, <laughs> ever. So you go to Japan. How long were you in Japan for? Uh, about four days, five days. Okay, so is it like being a rock star, you could be anywhere, or did you actually see what was going on in Japan? Um... What do you mean? Okay, you know, uh, this guy, you know, Neil you mean, was Preston. was I sequestered? From- you know, Neil Preston, he was a photographer for Led Zeppelin. He says, I've been all over the world. I've seen nothing. Oh, uh, no, they got, they show me around. You know, my my um, my handler was very good at just, because she knew I was super excited and I was, right. I was just bewildered with everything. And so she took me to some of the tourist spots and, you know, they, they filmed me. I forgot to bring a new pair of shoes. They filmed me going to buy shoes in Harajuku <laughs> and... It was, uh, I mean, it was life-changing for me because it was the first time I had traveled abroad and, and I was alone. I was in Japan. It was all, it was exciting. Right. Okay. So at that time, forgetting the trip to Japan, to what degree, how frequent were competitions? Uh, they started to get more and more frequent around that time. So I would say every three or four weeks. And how often would you have to get on a plane or somewhere to go to a competition? Um, but uh, The same. Okay. There, there were some, sometimes we were doing exhibitions in between those. You know, every once in a while we'd get called to some big skate shop would want to put up, you know, a skate thing and we would go do that. And then, uh, and then they started putting together tours. So we would actually go out on the road for five weeks in a van, five of us, with a bunch of ramps shoved into the back. Right. Like we would travel with our own little skate park and put it up <laughs> in a parking lot. At what point does it turn into money? Um, Around the time, for me, around the time I was 16. Okay, and what changed that turns it into money? Uh, the hype. The, the skating started to get popular. I mean, you started to see it on TV, like in the 80s. Back to the Future right. was a big deal. Really? Yeah. A lot of people in that generation started skating because of Back to the Future. That's amazing. Yeah. I never put those, those together. So you're now getting paid how? By winning competition, by sponsorships? Mostly by, by royalties, skateboard royalties. Um, the, the boards What's a traditional deal back then? Uh, I think that roughly you got about a dollar per skateboard they sold. Okay, and, and retail at the like time was 30, what? 30, maybe right. 25, 30. Uh, we started, I mean, what did we know? You know, we, we were right, still, Of course, you're nothing. Yeah, and, and there was no, like, there was no template for this. We didn't know how we're supposed to handle this or what, you know, what the best way to save money is and whatnot. And suddenly we were making 10 grand a month. And then it turned into like sometimes twenty. Okay, of the ten grand a month, most of that was board royalties. All of it. That's a lot of boards. That's ten thousand boards. Yeah, yeah. It and and then we're like, we're invincible. We're buying, you know, we're buying cars and we're flying our friends to Hawaii and and you know, not realizing that we got a, half of that we got to save for taxes. <laughs> right, and, of course. Um, and I was I was really thankful that that you know the the reason I bought a house is because my dad encouraged me. He saw this money and it was substantial, and he's like, "You got to put some of it away. You really got to save for the future." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> he's like, "I think you should buy a house." I'm like, "Yeah, my own house, cool." <laughs> Hi everyone, Bob Lefsetz here. I'm humbled by the initial response of the podcast, and I've been able to line up some excellent guests in future episodes. I can't wait to share those. I think you're in for a treat, so be sure to subscribe. Leave reviews. Tell your friends. It's going to be a big year. And now, more with Tony Hawk. 
Okay, so now you're in high school, you're doing all this stuff, and you're making more money than the teachers, et cetera. You say, I found my calling. Yeah. Okay, for those of us, you know, who think about your ubiquity, it really kind of coincided with the X Games. Would you say the same thing? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot, skipping a, a sort of decade well, don't, there, no, but... no, 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 don't skip it. Don't <laughs> skip it. That's what I want to know, how we get to there. Okay, so... That that hype of the '80s was was relatively short lived. I would say the the, the gravy days were '86 to '89, '90, okay. where we were making a lot of money. You know, we were being recognized. We were being asked to perform, to go on TV, to do videos and whatnot. Um, I spread myself extra thin with mortgages. I bought another place with a lot of property, so I could build my own ramps. And around '90 everything started falling. And I mean, like, skating... Again, the the skate parks that were being built at the time, they weren't concrete anymore. They were generally made of wood. They all lost their liability. Skating was considered a fad. People started to quit. Uh, my income dropped by half every month. Without, every not month? Kidding, not kidding. Yeah. And how low did it ultimately go? I, you know, relatively See? non-existent. I mean, in 91... Um, I found myself with two mortgages, uh, money just not coming in at all, and I was scrambling to do whatever I could. And, and luckily, my name was was still sort of out there in the ether, you know, with skateboarding. So, for instance, they would do they're going to do a commercial. Let me see what was the commercial. There was a Coke commercial for Japan, and they said, "Oh, we need we need stunt skaters, and we need a skate coordinator," and they called me up. Okay, you had no handler. Everybody went directly to you. Yeah, and I'm just getting scale. Right. But, but money is money. Bills. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Let, I'm going to segue to a different thing, which I find fascinating. You buy your own house, but you also got married and had a kid. Yeah, well, that, so that comes right at the tail end of all this dropping. Okay, so right that happened when, at the tail end. I didn't know. At, 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 as this is all sort of dropping, right. like when it's getting dire, that's when we have a child on the way. And it's like, this is this is it. Like I don't I, I don't know, I'm not sure how to parlay this career into something else. I don't want to get a nine to five job necessarily, but I will if I have to. And so I took my. I mean, this is literally like all at the same exact time. I took my equity in my house that I was in then, um, and used it to start a skate company, which seems like right. The it seems like digging the hole idea. deeper. Yeah. yeah. But for me, it was my, in, in my eyes, skating was cyclical. It had come and gone twice already in my, like, right, while I was doing right, it. Right. Um, it, it. It's bound to come around again. I feel like there's so, I always knew there was something more to skating than the general public was seeing. You know, they were just seeing, like, the crazy graphics and the hairdos right. and the punk music. And it was like, there's something else here. There's, you know, there's a, there's something this provides to kids that they can't find anywhere else. The ones that don't fit in. The ones that, you know, don't like team sports or whatever it is. There's an artistic element as well. And I wanted to be in the skate industry. And, and I thought my career as a skater was over. I really did. I was like, I've, I've run my course as a pro. I, you know, I was on number one for 10 years in competition. And I want to form my own company and do my, have my own direction and get my own skaters. So I did. Okay. You totally did it on experience. Did you have a friend and mentor, any of that stuff? I had a, another, I had a friend that was a former pro skater. I, well, coincidentally, the guy who did the skating in Back to the Future. Okay. <laughs> um, per Wheelander, who was, but he had a business degree and he said, hey, 
I heard you're thinking about making a move. I would like to pool our funds together and do something because I have the business expertise. You know, yeah, exp- well, expertise, the, the more knowledge than you anyway. do. Yes, exactly. And uh, and I said, yeah, let's do it. So we formed a distribution company with a skate brand inside of it, Birdhouse. Right. Um, and off we went. And you know, at some at one point, there were three of us that worked for the company. Uh, I was doing graphics, ads, videos, team management. And being a pro skater at the same time, um, it took all my time. You know, it was super. Obviously, it was a big strain on a marriage and right. <laughs> and a toddler. Um, but uh, you know, that was the dream for me. That was the dream was to have a company. To, okay. To do and skate. what did the other two guys do? Uh, well, they did. They did most of the paperwork, phone call, calling shops, sales. So you start. Was it successful from the start? No. It, um, no. I mean, nothing was. We made a splash. Like we, we were on the radar. I think what I, what I knew back then, and in hindsight especially, is that it didn't take a lot of capital for us to be known, because skating was so small. Right. So for us to get, like, say, the back page of Transworld or Thrasher, right. they were begging for advertisers. So we positioned ourselves pretty well at the time when it didn't cost a lot. And we were we were making really good videos. I had an eye for talent. I had one of the best teams. So our videos were, you know, they, they were they were sought after. Um, so we were, let's just say that we were staying above water. Okay, barely. and you make big mistakes. Uh, not at the time. Um, I think the mistake that we made was that we thought that it was going to turn around quicker. So somewhere around the third year of business. Pear and I had, right. had a pretty heavy discussion about w- how do we disband this, you know, this because we can't, we're barely staying afloat, um, and that's right when the X Games started. Okay, so you did you break apart the uh, partnership? No, you just hung in there, and all of a sudden we, it turned... we both we both took pay cuts. We just said we got to. Okay, let me ask you this though: How do you decide to get married at age twenty-two? <laughs> uh, I. I <sighs> Um, I had been with the same uh, girlfriend for a while. We lived together, and there was a little bit of outside pressure where it was like, "You guys live together?" You know, it was that right. era. It was just like, "What? You, how do you? How does that work?" And so we got we got married because we thought that was the natural progression. We were both way too young. You and know, was we she really working young. at the time? She was working full time. Yeah, as a manicurist, and she was the breadwinner at the time when we got married. And then, how did you decide to have a kid? Uh. I don't think it was a conscious decision, but <laughs> okay. So you're like 23 year olds old with a kid. What is, I don't even have kids. What is that like? Um, you know, it's weird. Uh, it was. Uh, well, I've, I've, I have many children now, so I I know you know I have a better roadmap of what to do. But at the time, it was really fun because I I grew up with a dad that was so much older he couldn't really participate in this stuff with me. I was right there in the mix. You know, I was super fun. I was, I was, <laughs> you were a kid yourself. And, and I was, you know, I was responsible enough, but, but I was pulled in so many directions trying to make a living that it did get tricky, you know, and there were a lot of distractions for sure. And ultimately it pulled us apart um, just based on our schedules. But, you know, it was just different scenes and, and there were a lot of strains back then. It was, it was really, it was really tough. Um, and, and it's, it's hard now cause you know, my, that's my oldest son, Riley. He's now a pro skater. A lot of people think he just had a free ride. He had silver spoon. Like, no, at one point he was living with his mom in a trailer on her boyfriend's dad's property. You know what? Like it was not easy at all. And I was out trying to 
to to make a living for us. Um, now, hypothetically, if you couldn't make ends meet, could your parents help you out? Uh, yeah, to an extent. But my expenses were pretty big at the time. I, I really I sold I sold my house for what I owed on it. Um and moved into a duplex, the original one that I had bought. Right. And you know, just cut back and I I, I literally ate top ramen and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a couple of years. Wow. I mean, I don't know how well publicized that is, but okay, so Am I leaving anything out if I go to the X Games next, or uh... no? I mean that's around that same time. Okay, yeah, so like that's so that's ninety five, right? So the X Games start. Is this something in your world? Do you see the potential of that? In a lot of ways, yes. Um, there was a lot of pushback because it was this strange experimental event that was including all these disciplines and all these sports that we had nothing to do with, right? And then suddenly they're like, "It's extreme." Like, what does that mean? Like, well, you know, rock climbing and sky surfing and bungee jumping. And I was like, I don't what is, <laughs> do anything. Like, we don't do any of those things. <laughs> right, right. I don't identify with any of those people, like, doing that. And, but, but I saw the opportunity to be, to, to have, to have modern skateboarding televised properly. Basically, I don't know, properly, but to have it shown for what it really is. You know, not just for the graphics and the hairdos and the, and the eccentricities, but really for the, for the physical feats of, of some of these talented skaters. And, and so I felt like if we just stay the course and we're skating and we're not falling into, you know, all the goofiness of what this can be or the sideshow that this is in a lot of ways, I feel like what we do will shine through. And I made that known to a lot of my peers too. You know, I was like, hey, we have this opportunity. Like, I know people want to ban this and whatnot. If we ban this, then these random other skaters that maybe aren't even as accomplished or as good are going to be the names everyone knows. Like, I literally did say that to a few people who were considering ban boycotting the event. Right, right. So you go, at this point, you're still competing while you're still running your uh, birdhouse. Yes. Well, okay, so, so around that time, um, we're getting deep here, but uh, around that time, I was still doing all the ads you know, all the marketing for Birdhouse. I had tried to sort of step back from being in the spotlight just so that I could run the business. And one of my one of my best skaters on the team and my partner, Pear, in the company, they sat me down. They said, you're way better for us front and center right. than you are sitting behind a computer. Like, you're way more effective. You're still skating super good. We want to bring back the Tony Hawk skateboard you know, we feel like this is this is the time, and and there's these events, and your name's still out there. Like this is what we should be doing, and I was kind of reluctant because I I just felt like I mean at that time what it was like twenty you know twenty six or something right um, twenty seven and and I was like I I'm old I'm over the hill like I I I, I was I felt good about my skating but I was just like I you know I feel like at that time, no one was in their late twenties professionally right. skating. No one was in their thirties professionally skating. There's, you know, that wasn't right. even, that was unheard of. Um, but I listened to him, and I, you know, I, I really focused on my skating again, and and got better than I was, and became, you know, this name that people knew from the X Games. Okay, but a little bit slower. Okay, so you had to hone your chops for the X Games. Um, I just had to, I had to get back into competition mode. Because by then I was just more shoot, skating for myself and for video, for for video coverage. 
Okay. Which is a different type of skating. It's a little more risky, um, more sporadic. You know, competition skating is like, you got to work on these routines and you got to work on these combinations and you got to make them consistently and you got to score good. Okay. So you go to the X Games, the first X Games. And you go, and as I say, you're coming from a thing where you've seen the up and down of skateboarding. You don't go with great anticipation. This is just another thing you're doing, right? Um, yeah, but I knew there was a lot of potential and that it's the biggest thing we had ever seen. So what was it like on your end of it? You go, it's on TV for, you know, days. Did you feel it? Um, afterwards. When we left there, I started getting noticed again. It was like, hey, you're Tony Hawk. I saw you on that Extreme Games. Like, that was awesome. You know, the whatever, the McTwist. And I was like, what? I, you know what a McTw- McTwist is? Like, <laughs> um, a little bit of that, but but a noticeable shift. Okay. And did that now start to grow, or did you have to wait for the next year's X Games? I would say it was the third year of X Games, 97, when we really And they got saw... rid of a lot of the BS sports to be... To yeah, be... I mean, yeah, the bungee jumping exactly. was over, the rock climbing was you know, on its way out. Right, and then skateboarding actually <laughs> took a new, higher level. Yeah, and they started adding motocross, and it was like, okay, this is what I'm more familiar with. Right. Um, but by then, you know, I, I was doing really well. I was still kind of dominating the competitions, and that was the name they knew. And I had survived one wave of skateboarding, so I was on the second wave. And so people knew my name from prior generations. And suddenly, we felt it in sales. Birdhouse was profitable. Like, it was a real thing. Um, and I was being asked to, to do a lot more things. I was getting sponsors that were non-endemic. You know, like random Club Med, right? You know, Hot Wheels, um, and it, and it suddenly was like, wait, hey, this is a business. Now, at this point in time, do you have a team? You have a lawyer? You have a manager? You have any of that stuff? Uh, I am, no, not really. I um, my sister had come from the music industry. She actually used to sing backup for Michael Bolton. Really? Yeah, and for the Righteous Brothers. And she got pregnant with twins, and she was a little older, so she decided to pull back from that. And then as my, as, as my career started to rise, she said, hey, I think I can help you with this stuff, because it is very much like entertainment these days. Right. Um, so she became my, my business partner and manager and helped me navigate these you know strange territories of <laughs> endorsements. Well, and- once you start dealing with those companies, there's real money involved. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't want you to know that. Right. Yeah. Um, and then not long after that, I got a real agent. I mean, okay. she she was still my business partner. Right. But I got a real agent because suddenly there were things that I just didn't really understand at all. I mean, I was getting right. like these, these endorsement deals and they required me to travel and they wanted all this time for me. And um, it, it was uh, it was a little overwhelming. And then suddenly someone stepped in and said, oh, if you know, you need a, a real manager. And suddenly my my income jumped. Tremendously, because right, because they know the landscape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they negotiate for a living. Okay, right. so now you're in this heyday, and everybody knows about skating. Once you get to the mid to late '90s, yeah, and you're the face of it all. So, is it all groovy, or whether you know deep inside you, were there still questions? Um, was it all groovy? It it seemed like it was all groovy. Um, for sure I was, you know, I was falling into distractions and I probably, I I probably could have given a lot of more of my time to my kids, you know, but I was, I was suddenly thrust into this, this 
level of success that I didn't know was possible in my field and one that was like, wait, this is reserved for, you know, actual movie stars and things. And isn't that what I'm supposed to do? Now I'm supposed to go to all the red carpet events and stuff. So I kind of fell into that for a little while, um, you know, that I... I regret now, but I I had to learn from those processes. You got to taste everything to know whether it's good. Yeah, but you know what I mean. At some point, I was like, "Wait, wh- why do I have to wear a suit here? Wait, I'm not friends with these people." You know what I mean? Like, well, there no, was- no, no, slow down a little bit. So, how much of this did you actually do? Showing up as being Tony Hawk the skater. Well, I just got. I kept getting requested. You know, right. like, and that was the day of awards shows. So it was right. like the blockbuster awards and the video game awards, and it was like they want you to present. And I was like, I'm, you know, at one point I had a wardrobe stylist, and it was just like this is a little get out a little out of hand. But um, but it was fun for sure. And 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 all along I knew that it was amazing for skateboarding. Right. To you know, even though some of these opportunities were for me only. I was the one that was raising the profile of skating through doing that. Like I got an endorsement with McDonald's and I knew that I was going to use McDonald's marketing money to promote skateboarding. Okay. But you're the face. There's a lot of sour grapes people out there, you know, sure. it, you know, being at the top is, as they say, it's lonely at the top. So what was it like being the number one guy? I mean, you're a friendly guy and it's a community. It was a lot of pressure. Pe- right. It was a lot of pressure. And there was, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of pushback, like a lot of haters. But I guess I, I, I endured the haters for so long as a kid that once I got to this level of success, I was just like, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> go ahead, say all you want, you know. And it was just like, oh, you're a sellout. I was like, am I? Because if McDonald's had offered me a sponsorship when I was... 14 right damn right it would have taken it like i was eating there back then right so i don't know what the selling out i feel like you know at some point and it would seem cliche but people are only calling you a sellout when your stuff finally sells that what they say in the music business is they say you know i've been waiting so long i'm dying to sell out you know anybody who's got yeah. the money but you know it's interesting that you make your point yeah once it finally sells that's when people are paying yeah, attention it was like you guys i've had a skateboard with my name on it since i was 14 you did not care back then right no one cared and now, now suddenly I'm a sellout. No, my boards are selling, you know, and, and people are finally asking me to, to do promotions and things like that. It's what, you know, this is a dream come true. But I was the one to first break through that sort of boundary that it would be okay to do sponsorships and endorsements outside of the skate world. Right. And I guess that, okay, go back to your point where you wake up one day and say, these are not my people. I don't want to wear a suit, et cetera. Um, I think that was that was more. I learned it maybe a little too late, but that was more in the early two thousands when my video game was really hitting, and you know, suddenly my name was synonymous with not skateboarding but video games as well. And it was like red carpets and parties and and bottle service and all that stuff. And at some point, I was like, I, I was just too distracted, um, and I and I was getting away from the core of skating that I really loved and falling into this weird sort of celebrity existence. Um, and I think it was, you know, around that time where I, I decided like, I need to really scale this back and get back to what I love doing. Cause I'm not loving doing this and, and get back to my children. Cause I was really kind of off and running. And, and, uh, I, I would say it was more like, you know, in the mid to late two thousands that I, that I've felt like I made a, a positive change in what I was doing. What does it take to make you put on a suit now? <laughs> Um, a wedding. Okay. But shy of that, anywhere you go, you're going as yourself. Yeah. I'm yeah, a at big this believer point, of that. Right. I, at this point, like, if they're not going to let me in with what I'm wearing, I don't want to be around them anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> if I can't wear my sneakers, forget about it. Yeah. How does the video game thing happen? 
Uh, so that was around the, the late 90s. Basically, I was always into video games. I mean, I played Missile Command, Pac-Man as a kid. I bought the first, you know, I had in television, I had Super NES, and I was a video game kid. I was an arcade kid. So uh, this, this PC programmer approached me and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing a, a video game, skateboarding on the PC, and he had this really crude little engine and motion. It was pretty sad. I mean, this thing he had created, but it was something. Right. And he's like, do you want to go pitch it with me? And if we can get the right partner, we can get funding for this and make it something real. I said, yeah, sure. So I went I went to pitch meetings with him. I went. We went to Nintendo. We went to different software publishers. And we just came up against, like, you know, barely a wall. Like, it was, I mean, not barely any interest. It was like... We, uh, I would spend the whole meeting defending skateboarding. Right. Well, like, why would skateboarding is not popular? Why would anyone want to play video games? Well, I, I think skateboarding could lend itself to a video game and whatever. The, finally, after the last meeting with Midway, who were probably the, <laughs> I, I usually say this story and never mention them, but at this point, I don't really care anymore because <laughs> it's such a long time ago. They were so discouraging and kind of insulting that that he gave up after that meeting. Okay. Like, literally walked outside and he's like, you know what, I don't really have time to do this anymore, but, you know, I wish you luck. And that had planted a seed in the video game world that said Tony Hawk is interested in video games. Okay. And not long after that, Activision called me. A few other companies called me, actually, but Activision called me and said, hey, we heard you want to do a video game. We're working on a skate video game. We'd like to have you come look at it. Well, it's very interesting because, you know, you're talking about this. I find if people reach out to me, it can work. If I'm selling, it never works. You have to explain who you are. It's just never the right thing. So anyway, you go to Activision. So I go to Activision, and I sit in this boardroom with all these heads, you know, administrative dudes. I'm definitely not dressed the part, but I think that's what they expected of me. And uh, they hand me a joystick, and they're like, well, this is what we're working on, and this is the engine. And and. This engine was built for a game called Apocalypse with Bruce Willis, based on <laughs> not a movie, but but you know it's supposed to be this sort of dystopian wasteland. He's got a gun and whatnot. So literally, the first time I played my own game, I was Bruce Willis with a gun on my back, <laughs> skating around this desert doing kickflips and stuff. Um, and I knew immediately that this was it. Really, like, I instinctively. The way the controls were laid out, it, like I started playing it, immediately started doing tricks, and I figured out what they were, you know, the, the sort of mechanism they're going for, and I was like, "This is this is it." With my influence, this will be the skating game. Like, oh, it's funny. It's not, I, I thought you were going to say the opposite. I thought you were going to say this is terrible. No, it was. I mean, it really was. That it was. There were a few moments in my life that I feel like was an epiphany, but there for sure it was right. like, and it wasn't an epiphany like this is going to be the biggest thing ever. Right, right. But it it's going to work as a video game. My in my head, I was like, skaters are going to love this, and skating wasn't even that big, so I was like, maybe this will inspire skaters to buy a PlayStation. Okay, and. There at that point, it was the Bruce Willis game. How much input did you have into the final game? I was there every step of the way. Oh, really? Yeah, for, for the better part of probably two and a half years. Um, they, I would be up there. I'd be at Neversoft up in Woodland Hills. Uh, they would send me burns of the new builds of, on, on CD. Right. They would send me CDs like every week. Right. And I would play it and give feedback. And, and uh, I, I mean, I was... I wanted it to represent skateboarding. Work. So it really is your game. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I can't take credit completely for right. the whole soundtrack right. and for 
um, you know, some of the mechanics and things like that. But but for sure, I it, it didn't pass without my approval. And do you have any idea how lucrative it was going to be? No, never. I mean, it, I, I knew, well, I knew that there was something happening because right before its release, uh, Activision called and they said, hey, we, we wanted to see if you want to get an advance on royalties or a buyout on royalties. I said, what does that mean? They said, well, we'll give you half a million dollars for advanced royalties, for royalties forever. Right. Like, buyout. that's my buyout. Right. And I never heard anyone say half a million dollars to me. Right, 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 right. You know, and, and, um, and I was, I considered it, but I had just bought a new house. You know, I felt comfortable in my finances beyond that. I wasn't making money from them yet. And I just said, you know what? I'd, I'd rather just see what happens. I mean, for sure that was the absolute best business decision I ever made in my life, but I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't even think it was that significant. Um, and then I knew that something was happening when they, you know, right as the first game was released, they called me and said, we got, we need you to come up and start talking about like what we're going to do next. What do you mean next? Well, for pro skater two, this thing just came out. Like, well, we, <laughs> we need a year to develop the next one. I'm like, Oh, I guess we're doing a new one. And then, the the sort of the next level of that was when number four came out the the other three were still in the top 10 of sales and that was the turning point that's when things got into like crazy money that i never imagined wow i mean i almost can't say anything what about the when you had the tour the huck jam thing um so that was supposed to be my uh that was supposed to be my transition from competing. I wanted to not compete anymore because I didn't, I didn't like the schedule and the pressure. And I, at that point, I'd done it 20 years of my life. And so I started the Huck Jam as a response to always being the sideshow to bigger events. So if you ever saw skating at an event, like at the Warp Tour or at a football game, it was like off in the parking lot or at the, you know, it was on the halftime show. And I was like, I feel like we've come so far with our sports that we could be the headlining act. And yeah, we'll have music, but they're going to play in the middle of our show. And I got, um, I partnered up with Jim Guierno, right. who had approached me, um, who was a music uh, manager, who had approached me around that time about working together on anything. And I, that was my, what I presented to him. I said, I want to do this tour. He's like, it's great. I know all the people that do tours. I'm like, Okay. He's like, we'll get Offspring to play. I was like, Offspring? He's like, yeah, I can get Offspring and I can get Social Distortion. I was like, really? And he's like, I think I can get Devo. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> right. Did you say Devo? He's like, yeah, I think they might want to play a show. And I was like, that, that's my Spicoli Van Halen moment. Right. If Devo played at my show, that's, <laughs> that is the end all to my existence. And it happened. And so what did we learn? Oh, I learned that the concert... Industry is um, a wild ride <laughs> um, and way bigger than I imagined. Uh, I learned that selling tickets is very challenging to any event. Um, I learned that, uh, that well, it's totally different now, but back then that, that getting a, an underwriting sponsor was everything. Right. Um, and luckily, ours was usually Activision you right. know, by default. Um and uh, I learned how to, I learned how to curate a show. I mean, I don't want to say curate, like produce a show, to make it something that is fun to watch from start to finish. But you stopped doing it. 
Uh, we stopped doing it just because sponsorship dollars, you know, in the mid 2000s got very difficult. We couldn't get someone to write a million dollar check to underwrite a whole tour that would take place in arenas because very few people were coming to arenas. Right. Um, it just, you know, it just got too, the, the, the business model of it was too tricky with, the, with how big it was getting. So we scaled it back. We did it in sheds uh, with sort of half of our gear and we made it work, but it wasn't the Huck Jam that I was really proud of. And then Six Flags saw one of our shows and said, we want you to do that in Six Flags next year. So we actually did a Six Flags Huck Jam tour with sort of the, the scaled down version of it, which was still fun, but it was weird, you know, like doing shows in an amusement park. <laughs> but some people came just for the show. Okay, at this point in time, at your house... You have all. What do you have in terms of skate facilities at your house? So I have a I have a concrete park in my backyard, about four thousand square feet. That's that's sort of like a traditional skate park you would see, you know, around the street. Um, and then I have my Huck Jam half pipe ramp in an office nearby. And how often do you go on on go out on either of them? Uh, I skate my ramp at least three times a week, three or four times a week. So I, I still do. I still actively do exhibitions, um, and I want to. You know, I still love skating, obviously, but I but I try to stay in practice. If uh, if I'm home, I'm probably skating out with the kids, maybe once every other day out in the backyard. But they all got their own crews. Like you, you know, even though I'm a professional skateboarder, well known, they're not really. They don't want to go skate with me in the backyard. <laughs> and do they all want to skate? It's so. I mean, it's not strange. It's awesome, but it's a totally different time. They all skate. They all love skating, and it's not because of me. I mean, it's accessible to them because of me. But, you know, when I was a kid, skating was rare. Right. It was, you know, it was the really outcasts that were doing it. And now all their bros skate. So how would you assess in terms of the up and downs? Where would you put skateboarding now? Uh, I would say that it had a meteoric rise um, in the early 2000s uh, that continued gradually but tapered off a bit into the late 2000s. And it's sort of plateaued, but still strong now in the U.S. Um, elsewhere, it's growing. And now skateboarding is going to be in the Olympics in 2020. That's going to raise this global awareness. You know, suddenly there's going to be Olympic teams from Ethiopia, from right. Cambodia. Like, that's true. It's going to happen. And that's what excites me now is, is this sort of global interest of skateboarding where these kids from the most unlikely places are going to feel that passion. So what's a typical day f like for you now? Uh, well, I try, to, uh, I, I try to limit my travel as best I can or to include my family when I do. I've, I've really you know, made a very conscious effort to be more present for them in, in recent years. And so uh, a typical day is waking up, getting the kids off of school, taking... How many kids in the house now? Uh, in, in any given day, there's usually two to four teenagers um, and then we have four teenage boys. My oldest son lives on his own. And then my daughter is, uh, she's nine. She's with us most weekends. So it's kids. Okay. Our house is kids. It's just, it's and super fun. I love it. It's always lively, you know? <laughs> um, but, but that's what it is. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm taking, I'm usually, I used to call myself just kid's chauffeur. Cause it's just like, all right, well now a lot of them are driving, which is right. the best. <laughs> It's the best. Um, and so I take one of them to school. I usually will go to my office not long after that and try to do whatever business I need, emails, interviews, 
you know, just dealing with licensing stuff or scheduling stuff. And then I try to skate my ramp before school gets out so that I can pick up my kids from school and I can beat what I call the X Games finals crowd, which is basically all the best skaters around my area love skating my ramp because it's the, it's the original Huck Sham ramp. It really right. is the best built ramp in the world. It cost me a million bucks. It better be. But, <laughs> um, but they all come to skate and their sessions are so heated and you know they're they all have that fire. They're all competing. I don't like that's not my scene anymore. Right, right. I don't want to fight for a turn on my ramp. <laughs> so I have we call it the old man session usually around around eleven or twelve. And then you and other any other buddies go out. Yeah, like uh, a couple friends that are you know my of my generation. We'll be skating, and they're they're all still skating really good. It's just that's our scene because we're going to get kids from school, right? And so your kids, you know, Riley's a professional skater. Your other kids are driving; they're going to be out of high school. What do you want them to be? What do they want to be? Um, well, one of them is already uh, he's at the Berkeley College of Music as of this year. Uh, my son Spencer, and he's he's loving it. He does his own EDM type of stuff. They all play music. Uh, my other son. Um, he is he's a hip hop I, I mean he's a hip hop encyclopedia aficionado. <laughs> um he wants to study doing something not making hip hop but but producing like a, a a line or management or something within that realm because he really does have an ear for it and and uh he has an eye for the creativity of it um one kid is really into computers like designs his own VR type of stuff and so he's kind of going that direction the other one uh, is, wow, what is he? He he uh, surfs, he skates, he plays piano. He's like a maestro piano. They all they all are very creative, but you know, kind of within the same worlds. Okay, skate and punk go together. How do you feel about hip hop? I love it. I love that it's like urban and it came from the streets, and you know, it was very infused in skating in the in the nineties. Skating and hip hop were were kind of hand in hand because they they came from the same ilk. Um, and a lot of skater, you know, a lot of rappers are skate. That's like, that's their activity. Thanks for listening to the Bob Left Sets podcast. If you want to see Tony with me at TuneIn Studios, check out the TuneIn Instagram account, at TuneIn, for some pics and videos from behind the scenes. If you simply can't get enough and want to know more of my thoughts on the future of the music industry, technology, and current events, you'll want to subscribe to my newsletter. Find and subscribe at leftsets.com. Now, enough shameless promotion. Let's dive back into the interview. So, at this point in time, what personally do you still want to achieve? Um, you know what? I don't, I, I never, I've never made any lofty goals like that. Like, I got to do this. Um, I'm just enjoying the ride now. I really like, I, I love I love that I still get to skate. Like I, I literally do skate for a living in some ways still. Um, and I'm very proud of that. I'm going to be 50 this year and I'm a pro skater and I still feel somewhat relevant. So that that's unbelievable to me. You know what I mean? And, and just sort of enjoying the opportunities that come with that. A lot of them unexpected. A lot of them are ones I never imagined, but, um, but I really enjoy them and, and, and embracing them and, and, being up for the challenge. Like, I do a lot of public speaking now, and, and that's not something I ever, like, I wasn't, I didn't think skateboard was a springboard to public speaking. But and what kind of gigs do you do? Corporate events, 
or like tech and so, summits and stuff. Okay, so and you know usually they're. Looking, I know we had like a little conversation about that once, but right. But um, usually they're looking for inspiration. Do you give them inspiration? What is I, it? I what is to, the essence of your speech? It's usually follow your passion for the most part, but a lot of times I'll tailor it. Like I've I've done it for long enough that I can kind of guide it a certain direction if they need me to. So you know, one was more geared towards social media. One was more. Um, uh, adapt to the marketplace, and um, I try to focus on those elements. But the easiest ones are when I can just answer questions. Right. When you go to a gig, do the groupies come up after, no matter where you are? The forty-five-year-old skater saying, "Oh, <laughs> yeah. blah 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 blah," they want to talk stuff. It, yeah, and and it's cool. Well, the the fun thing about that is, when you were a skater in the eighties, it was a very you thought it was a very exclusive club. And it was in a lot of ways because it just wasn't that popular. But once you're in, you like you loved it, and you you hold on to every magazine and video. And now that generation of dudes are mostly dads, and so they come up to me and they're like, "I love it. My kid skates, and <laughs> I tell them about Christian Osor and you guys and Bones Brigade." <laughs> and you know the fact that they have this in and they're still excited about it. It's it's really fun. Like I I I can't I, I can't believe that that we've come this far and that it's still it's still that relevant but also that that it inspired so many people back then okay going back to your own thing i mean listening to your story you definitely went you know this is like the people in the edm world it goes up and it crashes it goes up and it crashes but you're victimized by that with no fallback position so are you basically saying that it was luck that skateboarding came back or you're so passionate or you're a unique individual that would succeed at anything. How do you put that together? Uh, I think that I had the, well, I, I had the advantage of not ever in the beginning. The goal was not fame or fortune. That was never the driving factor of what I was doing because it didn't exist. And it, it wasn't just, it wasn't the, the idea. The idea for me was just to keep getting better at skateboarding. So through the, the di more difficult times or the more challenging times, that was still my motivation. And I wanted to keep skating however I could. So I was doing odd jobs and, and this and that just so that I would have some time to skate. Odd jobs, non-skateboarding gigs? Non-skateboarding, yeah. I had some video editing equipment, so I used to like edit videos for p freelance. Oh, really? Yeah. This was when you like your early 20s? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I uh it was the only time I actually got borrowed money from my parents was to buy this this three quarter deck uh editing system that was run through my computer through a video toaster, which was kind of the first Right, an Amiga home. Yeah, I had an Amiga and so I had the advantage of doing graphics with this video editing system. And so I mean I did I did a couple of like I don't wanna say Big time stuff, but you know, legitimate jobs. Well, what percentage of your income was based on it video editing? Very, very little. <laughs> it did not pay my parents back. Let's put it that way. But okay. it was paying the bills at the time. No, it's just you know, being in the ski world. You know, you wake up one day. It, it's very hard to make it. Skiing is not like we say. The people from California, surfers, they could live on the beach. You have a board. That's it. Where it's you live in uh, snow country. You got to have a roof over your head. Got to have a pass. Got to have equipment. And eventually, some people turn to dealing drugs yeah other people quit other people go to work for the industry other people get straight jobs it's it's hard to survive it's not as simple as saying oh i have a dream I and mean, it worked for you okay and i think yeah. that has something to do very special to you but i i'm wary 
you know, well, I knew when to I knew when to sort of pull back on the focus of my own say career in skating in order to nurture say my company that I started. So, what's the status of the company today? Uh, well, we've been going twenty five years, Birdhouse, and that's same three guys. No, I ended up um, buying my partner out about ten years ago, so it's just my entity okay. now. Uh, but we do have, we have four employees for the most part. We have a team of about 10 skaters who you saw when we right. video premiered our video. Um, and when I took it over from my partner, it had kind of lost its focus cause he was distracted with doing a lot of other brands. And I said, I want to put birdhouse back on the map. And that's pretty much what I've been doing for the last, I'd say eight years with birdhouse um, culminating in this video we just made, right, and finally getting us back on track to sell skateboards. And so, at this point in time, the last well, at this point in time, the last eight or ten years, is Birdhouse a profitable business? Uh, it is, but only because I will do um, sort of exterior licensing, right, and sometimes not even of the Birdhouse brand, but just of my name to keep the the ship afloat. So, for instance, I have this. Uh, Tony Hawk skate park series of, of skateboards that are more um, entry level skateboards that we sell at box stores. Right. Those royalties go to Birdhouse in order to keep it going and pay the salaries of my skaters. So at this point in time... Because they don't want Birdhouse at that level. I got you. But I don't mind my name being at that level. Right, right, exactly. So your main business enterprises today are Birdhouse? Uh, it, Birdhouse is, is still tricky. Okay. But it's surviving. Um, it's licensing. It's licensing our clothing line, Tony Hawk clothing, um, endorsements. I have an endorsement with Mini USA. Um, and honestly, like with the success of, of social media, that's become a source of income, which I never imagined. Go a little bit deeper. Uh, doing, doing sponsored posts or campaigns, things like that. You know, I was, I was there very early on you know, on Twitter. Right. Um, and... Uh, in fact, you wrote about one of my things I did on Twitter. I mean, this is like 10 years ago. Right. Uh, which is how I learned about you. And, and I just was trying to make it fun. You know, I knew that it was, it was, it was far-reaching, but I was just trying to make it fun for the people because I didn't want them to just think like, oh, hey, I'm hungry. Look, I got coffee. Like, what? Right. Who cares? Is that just your internal <laughs> voice? And now, and I was just trying to think of like, what would I want to read from someone? Or what would I want to participate in? And so... Through that, I had success. I got a lot of followers on Twitter, obviously, and then through Instagram and through Facebook. And suddenly, before I knew it, I had this sort of business opportunity. And, and it's not really why I do it. Right. It, it never has been. But it's suddenly, it's like, wait, you'll pay me to... What? Really? And I don't really have to change my voice. I, that's the only stipulation I have. I'm like, look, if you want me to do this, I have to do it in my own terms. I'm not just going to put your marketing, you know, <laughs> your talking point out there. Like, I'm going to make it my own voice. So, although no one calls anymore, is the phone still ringing? The opportunities <laughs> can, the opportunities continue to come in at the same level? They do, yeah. And and like I said, when I, when I do get an opportunity, I embrace it and I try to make it something fun. And it usually ends up parlaying into something else. And who's fielding all those? Uh, well, I do have people at my office. So okay. I do have... Uh, my sister is still my business partner, but I have a uh, you know a few people at my office where they they answer the phone and they do my schedule and okay. But your story, listening to it now for the past hour, you always say yes. Is that true? No, no. In fact, 
once I got that level of success, especially with the video game, that was the finally the time where I was allowed to say no, because I was, I was com- I wasn't struggling to make ends meet. I didn't have to do every single thing, and even now, I mean, for sure nowadays. I'm saying no way more just so that I have my own time so that I, you know, have control of my life and I'm with my kids. Um, but it, but it's a difficult, <laughs> it's a difficult transition to make, you know, to where suddenly it's like, wait, what? You want to do this? No, I don't. What? That's not going to, you know, that's not going to change what I'm doing or the reach that I have. And it's just going to take up more of my time, like getting there and doing but it. But you've been up and down financially. At yeah. this point, do you have any fear that you're going to run out of money or you feel, okay, I'm set, and there will continue to be opportunities? Um, I, I'm not set in the sense that if I stopped everything, I could just live off my savings necessarily because um, I still want to provide for my kids into their adult lives right. you know, or at least have them not – I don't want them to want for anything. I don't want them to struggle with you – know, I want them to be productive and to take pride in their work, but I don't want them to feel like they're going to starve. Um, so yes and no. I mean, yes, I would, we could live modestly throughout our days and be fine. Um, but, but I do feel like there are other, there are other things that are, that are still would be fun to accomplish. Well, what are those things? Um, I would love to, uh, our clothing line has, has lingered in the U S for a long time. It was exclusive to Kohl's for almost 10 years. And I would love to see the international potential of that. Because our clothing line was started by my siblings and I because we all had kids and we couldn't find cool clothes for our kids. That, that was it. That was the basic concept. And we started making cool clothes for toddlers. And then it started getting into young men's. And then we had, suddenly we had a legit clothing line and Quicksilver bought the IP. Then uh, Cherokee bought it. And that, that now gives us the opportunity to take it on a more global scale. Just going back, one final thing. If you look at your success, which has been over decades and multifarious, what do you think the key element is? Um, I think the key element for me was um, for sure perseverance, but also um, not being detracted or, or um, discouraged by the naysayers. Not listening to them. And like I said, I had plenty of that early on. I mean, it set me up so well for so many different things in life, but I had so many naysayers early on in my skating career and, and sort of found my voice and you know became successful with it that once I started getting sponsors, the big sponsors, and people were like, oh, you're selling out. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, this, I'm, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I'm proud of what I'm endorsing. And then came social media with hate like you've never known. Oh, yeah. And... I was ready. You know what I mean? I had been through these different waves of it. Uh, my shell was tight. Okay, so somebody says something negative, rolls right off you. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes it, it stings a bit, but... Um, I'm sure you have haters like I have who hate multiple times a day, every day. Sure, yeah. But then it's just like... But then if you go to their feed, that's all they're doing is just yelling at people. <laughs> and it's just like, well... <laughs> I'm not. I'm not exclusive in your hate, so <laughs> I don't take it as as harshly. It's only when they talk shit about my my kids is right. when I will not get involved. I just delete it, right? Because they don't need that. They don't. They're not. 
They're not participating in this. They're not right, guilty right. of anything. I have certain lines that are very similar. One thing I am definitely not as a naysayer. Certainly, there's so many people with a profile who are essentially nonverbal. Uh, musicians are most famous for that. But you can certainly tell a story. It's been very edifying and interesting. I'm sure my audience will love it. Tony, thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thanks for writing about the Birdhouse video. That was okay. super, well, it super was cool great. It was bonus. great to go to the scene. I mean, that's one of the things, that's a big cultural change. You know, we live in this society right now where the self-anointed media elite is frequently out of touch with what's going on. And one of the interesting things I saw primarily in, as we would say, you know, X Games or uh, uh, sports of that ilk was the community spirit. When I grew up as a baby boomer, people wanted to win, okay, and there were the winners and the losers, where if you watch, you know, a skate competition, whatever, they'll rally all around. You know, the winner will be with the loser, and it'll all be a sense right. of community, and I, I learned that from skating, yep. and then it evolved even, you know, amongst the millennial generation. I mean, in my when I grew up and I was going to school, people would raise their hand, want to stand up. Not a lot of people, I don't want to stand out, I want to be a member of the group, et cetera. So there's been a huge cultural impact. And it's also interesting because people your age, 10 years younger than myself, uh, you know, I go, I go, you know, I hang with these people. And skating is such a big part of their culture. People don't realize this. Like, you know, this guy Ian Rogers presently works for, is it LMVH, LV, you know, Louis Vuitton, LVMH, used to work uh, for Apple and Beats, whatever. Oh, big, yeah. Big skater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and I know this guy. I got, I got an email from him, actually. <laughs> okay. My friend Mark Ryder works with Metallica. Yeah. Big skater, and we go with Joel Gomez, who got started. Right. It's amazing what a culture and how it intertwines. Now, another thing you're doing, although I said we were ending here, is you're also your foundation is building skate parks. Right. So tell us just a little bit more about that. Uh, so we started the foundation um, about 15 years ago. And the goal was just to help people get through the process of getting a skate park. It wasn't our it, it wasn't our intent to just pick a city and say this city needs a park. It was more it was more um, looking at communities that are trying to get something going for themselves and giving them the resources necessary for it. So giving them funding, but more importantly, the the guide to getting through the red tape to city council meetings to petitioning and all that stuff. Um, and we've learned a lot through the, through the process. We've gotten, you know, the, the support of, of larger philanthropy in a lot of ways. And so we've helped to develop almost 600 skate parks now. So what is the biggest challenge building a skate park? Other than usually, the money? usually the approval process, getting, getting either the city behind it or the location. Um, the funding can be a problem. And usually with our, with, with our grant and our endorsement, That'll get them a lot more in matching funds, and, and maybe even it'll be the tipping point for them getting it approved completely. Um, it's definitely the work I'm most proud of, and, and I, you know, I enjoy it, on, and selfishly, I just get more places to skate. And then what's the liability issue today? Well, the skateboarding was added to the hazardous activities list about 15 years ago. Well, maybe a little less, but that was right around the time we started doing it. And that allowed people to build skate parks in public areas and not have them monitored. Because skating is at your own risk. Like, it, it actually fell under the same stipulation as skiing. Right. So, you ski, you get hurt, can't blame anyone. Right, exactly. Nowadays, you skate, you get hurt, you know. It's and not, that's working it's not out? It's fault. It is, yeah. It, it, it gets weird because if they do a skate park and they want to enforce pads, um, 
which you know I encourage, especially for beginners, if they if they want to enforce pads and someone is skating without pads and they get hurt, then they are liable because they weren't enforcing it enough, and it gets really. I mean, it's just you know, you know liability is so, there such a nightmare. Okay, well, we're not going to get hurt here in the studio. Thanks again, Tony. <laughs> All right, thank you. Hey, this is Bob Lefsetz. I want to thank you for your time. Much like the Lefsetz letter, I want to hear from you. You can email me at bob at leftsets.com and let me know what you think. I appreciate your comments. Be sure to subscribe on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. If there are apps we're not available on, let me know and we'll get them there. Remember, distribution is king. And if you're not a subscriber to the Leftsets letter, visit leftsets.com and subscribe for regular newsletter updates on a wide range of topics, including those not covered here. Don't know exactly why Must be